Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 18. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, everybody. I am Richard Ryerson. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast. I hope you're finding some value in all these episodes. I know it's been fun for me talking to all these leaders and leadership experts. Hey, before we get started in the interview, I wanted to pass along and ask you, if you're looking to add value to your leadership walk, if you're looking for personal one-on-one coaching in regards to leadership, I am available for one-on-one coaching. You can find out more information at my website. Go and click on the coaching menu item and you can find all sorts of information on the services that I provide. I guarantee you, no matter where you're at and what stage of life you're in, I can help you or your organization have a positive impact. I can help guide you to help identify and work toward any specific goal that you have. And what I guarantee what you'll get from me is an empathetic coach who's faced similar challenges, similar obstacles, and similar opportunities as you. I'm no different than you, but I'm passionate about leadership and I can help you achieve your goals in leadership. Anyway, thanks again for all your support. Enjoy the interview. Well, I'm so excited to have on the show today Adam Makos. He's a journalist, an historian, and an author of of the New York Times bestseller, I just finished it about 20 minutes ago, called A Higher Call. In his 15 years of work in the military field, Makos has interviewed countless veterans from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, and present-day wars. And he considers his high point of his work occurred in 2008 when he actually traveled to Iraq to accompany the 101st Airborne and Army Special Forces in their pursuit of al-Qaeda terrorists. I brought Adam on there because I'm a big fan of history, and I think we can learn a lot about leadership, particularly when we talk about combat leadership Adam has a passion of talking with particularly World War II vets. Again, I think um, talking and learning about history, particularly combat history, exposes the human spirit, and we can look learn from its extreme examples so many lessons, particularly when it comes to leadership. Adam, thanks for coming on the show. How are you today? Oh, doing great, Richard. It's my pleasure to be with you. Well, first, let me congratulate you on the book. Again, I literally just finished it 20 minutes ago. I started reading it yesterday morning, and I couldn't put it down. What a compelling read. And uh, again, I've read a lot of World War II history books, and this is this is definitely one of my favorites. It actually, you know, I'm not afraid or ashamed to admit it, it moved me to tears a couple of times. And what a great, compelling story. Can you tell me a little bit how you came about? Give us a little brief background on how, what prompted you to write A Higher Call. Sure. I'm so glad to hear you liked it that much. Uh, it, it's an emotional story. It's, it's, uh, it's the holy grail of World War II stories, as far as I'm concerned because it, it's so different from any World War II story anyone's, um, anyone's read or written, because uh, very few people attempt to show both sides of the same battle. You know, they can do it from a, from a big-picture perspective, you know, oh, this general moved his troops there, and this general moved his troops. But to actually find two men who squared off against each other in combat, chose not to kill one another, and then later became best friends, that to me was just, again, the holy grail of World War II stories. I found it, actually, by looking for other stories. I was interviewing uh, World War II veterans, just bomber pilots and gunners and, and fighter pilots, and they kept saying, did you hear about the German who let the American bomber escape? And I thought it was just a tall tale. And I said, wait a second, I've got it. I keep hearing this, I keep hearing it, I've got to track this down. So I started looking for the participants in this legendary encounter, and I found the American first. His name was Charlie Brown, and I tracked him down in Miami, Florida. 
and that's how the whole adventure began. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, when I picked up the book, I thought this was going to be mainly about Charlie Brown, but it really is about the German pilot, pilot Franz Stigler. Am I saying his name right, Franz Stigler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you are correct. Uh, I thought so too, Richard. I, I thought, well, I'm going to do a story about an American pilot, an American crew, and I'm going to tell their story because of what I knew. And, and then Charlie stumped me. He said, Adam... Let me stop you right there. He said, I know you want to interview me. I know you want to tell my story. He said, but I'm just a character in this incredible story. The hero is Franz Stiegler, the German pilot. I call him my older brother, and he's alive. So if you want to do the story right, I want you to go interview him first. Wow. And, and to, yeah, it threw me for a loop because I said, wait a second, I've got to go interview a German pilot. And then Charlie said, oh, he's living in Vancouver, Canada. So that made it a little easier. But I'd never talked to a German before. I'd always avoided uh, the enemies of our country. I, I never thought their stories had any merit. But this Franz Stiegler, uh, his story sounded like something very unusual. Yeah, you know, we were talking about this in the pre-interview prior to, to the recording that I learned a lot. And again, I've studied World War II for a long time, but I learned so much about how, um, particularly in the aviation side of the house, um, they didn't. They were, they really weren't affiliated with with the party. Here you had Franz Stiegler, who was a devout. Well, is it right to say he was a devout Catholic? I mean, he he yeah, yeah. you're correct. He he was a devout Catholic. His parents were from the very beginning didn't you know they didn't vote for the party. They were anti-party. And I was also amazed too that Hitler's party, the Socialist Party, was was voted in with only forty four percent of the vote. That was amazing. Exactly. It's incredible, Richard. If you if you just uh, and, and anybody can even find this, it's always been sitting out there. It's yeah. just it never got the attention. I, for all, all all time, we've said, oh, we were fighting. You know, we killed a Nazi soldier. We shot down a Nazi pilot. And and really, we have to look at the fact that in the 1933 German federal elections, the last elections Germany had, because when Hitler took power, he abolished all political parties. So right. he, had, he abolished all opposition. He formed these concentration camps. He started putting his political prisoners in them. And and Germany really, when they when they had that last election, 56 percent of the part of the country voted for parties other than the National Socialists. So Hitler actually took control with 44% of the country. So the way I, I look at it is every other German, if you say that the son is like the father, and most of the, the sons who fought in World War II, they didn't even vote in the last election. Right. But if the son is like the father, then every other German we killed in World War II was potentially a good guy, if you want to if you want to say the people who voted against Hitler were the good guys. Yeah, I think we had this faulty perception that they're all anti-Semitic, you know, they hated the Jews, and it wasn't the case. And in, and in case of you look at everybody that was surrounded by, you know, Franz, you know, why were they fighting? Well, I mean, they were fighting for, the, you know, a little bit of, you know, national pride, but they were fighting like everybody else. They were fighting for the guy next to him. They were fighting for, in Franz's case, he was, he, he was kind of fueled by his brother's death and, and, you know, they weren't really fighting for Adolf Hitler or the for the party at all. It's you know, it's fighting for the guy next to you. It's fighting for your family member. Mm -hmm. and, and many times, it's it's going marching off to war with with a gun at your head. Um, yeah, Franz was drafted into the military. He was an airline pilot for yep. Lufthansa, mm -hmm. and uh, and he was drafted. And they said, okay, you're a flight instructor now. And there was no saying no. You couldn't. Some people have said, oh. Well, I, I know Franz Stiegler is the hero of this story, but why didn't he just take his plane and fly to Switzerland? Right. Why did he Why did he stay in Germany and fight for his country? Well, for one, you know, he had a family there, so he had his mother and father. You just didn't 
run away in, in those days because the, the Nazis would punish your family. And, and at the same time, Hitler thrust his country into a world war with, with every major nation on earth. And, and, and they knew, Franz knew from 1941 onward, Germany was going to be destroyed. Yeah. So it was really from the beginning, never about fighting for Hitler. It was about fighting to keep the bombs from falling on Germany, fighting to keep the, uh, the Soviets out of, out of Germany. It, it became many things, and it was very simple in the end for Franz. It was, you yeah. have to fight, and you have to fight for your homeland. Yeah, you know, that poignant part in the story where Franz was at that family, I forget what the town was, but he was, um, I think, was he, was he trying to get back to his mother before, you know, going to that um, kind of medical place to recover and, uh, called Florida, and he got with that family? And um, mm-hmm. he sat out there and looked at the sky with that little girl. Yes, yeah, Potsdam, yeah, right but, outside of Berlin. And you know, and you and you see how you know that's what he was fighting for, so that bombs weren't falling on you know. It's just madness, and you're thrusting the madness just like everybody else. And 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 Franz knew that early on, and that's what kind of prompted him, kind of the the key critical act in the story. Which let's talk about a little bit here. You know, here you got Charlie Brown, this young. Uh, he was 21 at the time. He lied. I think he was telling everybody he was 25 because he wanted everybody to think he was older from a leadership perspective. But, you know, mm-hmm. guy that was passionate, always wanted to fly, and here he was flying, and now he's in his first combat mission in a B-17. And it just things do not go their way. And um, I'll leave a lot of the d- details for the book. It's just amazing. You can't believe some of the details in the story. But here they are. The, the plane is, you know, beyond all belief, you know, trying to head back to England after dropping their bombs. You know, half of its horizontal stabilizers sh- shot off. Most of its rudder's gone. Holes the size of softballs throughout the fuselage and everywhere. I mean, the thing is barely staying alive. People are dead, wounded. It's just amazing they're staying alive. And um, let, I'll let you take it up from there. So kind of let's talk about that key moment in that story. It's it's not really the, the climax of the story. It's, it's kind of the middle part and so much stuff happens after. But talk about... Franz and that point on here you got this crippled B-17 bomber trying to head back to England mm-hmm. yeah, gladly it's uh, it was Charlie Brown's first mission with his crew and it was his worst mission and, and so it was a very bad way to start his tour as a bomber pilot uh, again you, you describe the damage perfectly he's trying to get back to England he's about 2,000 feet over northern Germany just steering for the ocean and he flies over a German airfield Franz Stiegler is there, rearming, refueling in his fighter, and he takes off, chases down the American bomber, and then what I call the most incredible encounter of World War II takes place. Uh, Franz comes up and he waits for the American bomber to fire back at him, he waits for the tail guns to, sh- to open up, and he says, okay, when you shoot at me, I'll shoot at you, and, and we'll just we'll let God sort it out. And, um, and his whole career, Franz had been shooting at airplanes. He never actually saw the eyes of his enemies. So it made his job pretty easy. You, you know, the machine is shooting at you, you're shooting at the machine, there's nothing personal about it. Well, when Franz came up to that bomber, the tail gunner never fired because he was dead. So Franz came closer and closer, and then he saw the dead man, and he said, oh great, what do I do now? This plane is completely defenseless. He saw how badly it was damaged, and he said, and, and he thought back to that lesson from Africa that his first squadron commander had given him, where he said, if you shoot a man in a parachute, I'll shoot you down myself. And that stayed with Franz, and there was a reason for that, and it was that you fight with honor, you fight by rules, not necessarily even for, for the uh, benefit of your enemy, but for yourself. 
you play by the rules so that you keep your soul, so that you yeah. keep your integrity. And that's a powerful lesson right there in, in leadership. It's that, you know, you, you do the right thing when no one's watching um, for many reasons, but among them, so you can sleep at night, so you can be proud of yourself. And um, Franz saw that damaged bomber, he saw it as a parachute, and he said, uh, this will not be on my conscience for the rest of my life. And he touched the rosary, because he carried a rosary in his flight suit. He was a, a devout Catholic, as, as she said. And, and he knew not only would he have to answer to himself, he would have to answer to God. And so instead of shooting down the bomber, he pulled up alongside of its wing. He saw Charlie Brown there in the cockpit. Charlie Brown looked out and saw Franz. That's when Charlie closed his eyes, shook his head, and he thought he was in a nightmare. But really... The German fighter plane on his wing that he thought was his nightmare actually was his guardian angel. Yeah. He was just sitting there looking, and he was frantically trying to get Charlie to head towards Sweden because he just didn't think as they were heading. And, and physically where they're at, they're, they're approaching the Atlantic coast, You know, one of the most heavily defended areas uh, in Europe at that time. And... Yeah, like he said, he was 2,000 feet or less as he was heading towards that coast, and so they were just going to get chewed up by flak. And so here was here was Franz having the moral courage to just stick with him as a wing, as a you know, despite all that was new and this was treasonous, sticking with him and staying with him and trying to get him to go to Sweden. And then when you know out of that confusion, they never could understand what was going on, and Charlie Brown continued to fly straight through Lingen. England over the water and Franz peeled off saying you know what he saluted him and went away and said he figured he was probably going to you know crash in the ocean but he did as, as best as he could exactly and, and that was the most incredible part of the story it's Franz holding his finger off the trigger is one thing okay yeah. you spare them you fly away okay you did your your deed but what he did next I think is is what's so incredible about it like you described he stayed with the bomber he knew that if he flew away, another German fighter plane might come down and swoop down and knock the plane out of the sky. It would have been easy. And he also knew that if he, if he left the plane, the bomber would have to fly over those flak guns. And right. the German flak guns on the ground would likely knock it down. And so by staying there on his wing, you know, he was sending a message to anyone else who would interfere. And, and that message was incredible because he actually put his life on the line. And someone in an Amazon.com review pointed out something very fascinating. They said, have you ever heard that quote, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends? What about the man who would lay down his life for his enemies? Yeah. Wow. And when I read that, I said, my goodness, that is this story. I mean, that is, that is what he did. He was willing to lay down his life for his enemies. And, and that's why when I look at Franz Stiegler, and now his heroism is coming to light. I mean, a higher call is been on the bestseller list for about eight weeks. Uh, people are discovering this man. But he's really one of the great heroes of World War II for that very act. Yeah. And it's so, oh, there's so many things wrapped up in that. I mean, and even we talk about here on the Dose Leadership, and a lot of the leaders, we always talk about those those little acts that no one sees. And you, you said it earlier in the interview here, it's doing what's right even when no one's looking. And that mm -hmm. simple act had a ripple effect that, that we're still feeling today. I mean, you and I are having a conversation because of that act. I mean, that, that's, okay, what, what's so great about that? But you look at all the chain of events, the things that wouldn't have happened because of, of if so many things could have changed. And at the end of the story, when, when 
they meet and some of the crew members were still alive and they all met and they were in that circle and Blackie and, and, and the other crew members and they met Franz for the first time and everybody stood in that circle, you know, and everybody just started sobbing and wept, you know, and you think about that. Because of Franz Stiegler, 25 men, women and children, all descendants of Charlie, of Blackie, of uh, what's the other guy's name? Peach, uh, Peshaw, yeah. Peshaw. They all had a chance to live, right? Yeah, and, and Charlie, those were just three of um, the crew members. You had nine who survived. And, and so you probably had, by the time you were done, 100 people came into being uh, because Franz didn't pull the trigger. And that's an incredible thing. It's like you said, the ripple effect. What, what, uh, what will those people, how will they change the world? How will they make it a better place? Um, what lives will they live? all because of, of this one little 10-minute act yeah. in 1943. And, and we're talking about it today. And, and, and maybe, maybe, Richard, it'll change the way we look at some, some wars and our enemies. For example, I was reading something about the Korean War the other day. And, and again, before I were, wrote A Higher Call, I had no sympathy for the enemy. Yeah. I just said, you know, you're, you're our enemies. You're, you're meant to destroy. You know, you cost American lives. Uh, you know, you, you, you're, you're reprehensible. Well, when I was reading the, about the Korean War, um, they're talking about these battles between the Americans and the Chinese. And you come to realize, once you decide to start looking a little deeper, you say, who were our enemies? Who were these Chinese? And it turned out that many of the Chinese who were fighting us in the Korean War had been our allies in World War II just five, six years earlier. They were fighting for Chiang Kai-shek, and they were... Uh, they were defending American air bases in China, and they were fighting the Japanese. And then all of a sudden, the communists took over China. They took over all the soldiers, and suddenly the guys who were the nationalists became communist soldiers overnight. Not that they had a say in it. And next thing they know, they're finding themselves in the snow, battling American soldiers in the mountains of Korea, killing each other. And, and, and so the story like this changed me irrevocably. I said, you, you almost have to look at every fight now and say, okay, wh- how does that person uh, see their position? What's their worldview? Who are they? Because sometimes you find out, wait a second, the guy we call the bad guy is not a bad guy at all. Yeah, no, that, that's so so well put. You know, and I think I, I'm like you, you know, from junior high, high school, you know, I always wanted to be in the military. I always wanted to be, you know, I did loved war movies. And, and you're right, and you, you look at it at that superficial level, that's how we all start getting fascinated with it. But the more that you study, and especially when you talk to these vets and you talk to these people that have been there and have experienced these incredible stories, those guys know how to love another human being better than anybody else that I know. And they were in the throes, and, and they have every reason to hate those enemies. You know, I was telling you on the pre-interview, too, about a guy. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to interview him tomorrow and record his story again, an Iwo Jima vet. You know, and he was 17 and 18 when he was, you know, in on the Guadalcanal and Peleliu and and he finally got shot in Iwo Jima, you know. Every reason to hate the Japanese his whole life. And I was sitting there in a, um, uh, about a year ago, he was in the hospital, I went and visited him. And, and I've heard his story countless times, and he's sitting with his wife. And and I, I said, how did all that, and I love hearing those stories. And, and you would think, it's like, oh, you're just like hearing those stories about the, the combat and the, I don't. I mean, I'm just amazed at, at what they went through and that they, they, they created a life afterwards. And I asked him, mm-hmm. how did all these stories define you? You know, how did it define your life? And he paused for a second and he said, you know, Rich, it didn't so much define me, it refined me. 
he said, you know, I didn't have any. I had a, my mother died when I was young. I had a stepfather who was kind of an alcoholic. I don't know what kind of an alcoholic is. You know, he was an alcoholic. It wasn't very nice to him. And the Marine Corps became his family. And he said through all that, you know, terrible things and all the nightmares, he learned how to love another human being. And his wife was sitting there just nodding her head. And he said he did. And he went back to Iwo Jima to visit. I think it was about four years ago. He went back. And when he was going in and he's landing in Iwo Jima, you know, the Japanese, um, it's a, um, oh, I forget, they, they own the island now, but it's, you know, to go in there, it's not as easy to, you know, they, but they sent a lot of vets in there. But there was a Japanese Zero pilot sitting next to him going back to visit another World War II vet. And so here he was, you know, and he's having this, this conversation with him, and it's almost like it, it came full circle. You know, here he was talking to a Japanese Zero pilot who lived through the war, and he realizes they're just human beings like me, you know. I don't know. I just think those are great when you just hear those things from that. It does put it in perspective, and it does change you. Like you said, it changes you to look at things differently and, and from a leadership level, from a humanitarian, uh, humanity level. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've I been mean, kind of talking a lot here, but uh, what do you think about that? Oh, no. oh I, I agree. Full circle is, is the best way to describe it, as you did. Um, for Franz and Charlie, it came full circle. and Suddenly, when they're standing there looking at each other, the, the whole tragedy of the war is is it's apparent all of a sudden that that uh, how pointless it was because it, it really 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 is pointless. It's um, everybody says that, but it, it's always a it's always one percent of the population stirring up ninety nine percent of the population to to go kill another population, and and it's not an anti war message. I'm, I'm no. I mean I'm all about uh about strength and 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 that strength in itself is what gives us peace in many cases. Because there are bad men in this world, there always have been, and there always will be. Um, I think the uh, example, though, of, of World War II is just so tragic. I mean, look at look at us. We fought the Japanese, and we fought the Germans, and we fought the Italians for a while, and and now we're friends. Now you can go to you can go to Venice, Italy, and you can go to Munich, and for for Oktoberfest, and you can go to Tokyo and look at the lights, and and it's it's pretty dang pathetic because sixty years. Is not that long, right? Um, it, it seems long to some of us. Uh, you know, we look at these black and white movies, but I think if we saw World War II in color, it would feel it feel a lot closer. And um, anyway, I guess I'm just trying to say that um, it just reflects the ultimate tragedy. And I, I, again, you don't realize that until you really talk to the fighting men, the men who were there, and you start to see how often some of them felt compassion for their enemy. Yeah, and. Uh, Charlie and Franz were just—they're just icons of that feeling. Yeah. What? what tell me a little bit about with your um, kind of present experiences of being in Iraq and seeing the uh, dealing with the troops today's troops. Do you see any similarities? Any differences? Anything that stands out? That's a great question. Um, I was just there briefly, um, just uh, with the—I um, I went over as a reporter just to work a little bit with the 101st Airborne, and then ended up. Uh, tagging along with the um, special forces out of Washington State, Fort Lewis, I believe. And um, when I was there, I, I think you see the waste. That was the first thing that struck me. You you look around and you see um, you see just billions of dollars just being thrown in ditches. Um, that was the that was the first thing that hit me. Then you also see the generosity and the goodness where these young soldiers and Marines. Uh, and airmen were were trying to do so much to help the Iraqi people. They really, really 
it was a humanitarian mission as much as it was a war mission. And, and so you see the goodness there next to the waste. Then you see some of the laziness of some of the Iraqi people, how they actually didn't want to help themselves, how they actually couldn't bring themselves to seize the opportunity that our people were giving them. Yeah. And, and, and then at the same time, um, you, I, I actually had a kind of a Franz and Charlie moment where I met um, an Iraqi general, and it was at a, it was at a secret meeting, and, and they, were, they were trying to recruit this guy to help fight the insurgents. And the insurgents at that time were Iranian. So here's this guy who was one of Saddam's generals. He has us over to his house in a walled courtyard, and, and the special forces are there. They surround the, the, the house with Humvees with their guns pointed outward. And they said, we don't know what this guy's like. We don't know what team he's on. But, but they, they sat down, and he prepared this big banquet for us, and we all stood around and ate with our hands. And um, at the end of the day, they turned this fellow, and he began working for the Americans against the insurgents because the Iranians were sending in special forces teams to try to blow up Iraqis, to try to blow up Americans, to try to sow um, discord. So... All of a sudden, you're with this guy who's one of Saddam's generals, and he's he's handing you a plate of chicken, <laughs> right. and and he's you're, and he's working for America now, and and um, I don't know, it's pathetic, it's sobering, and uh, and it just teaches you it, it it would be so nice if we never had to do any of this stuff again, if if the world could just get along. It sounds so stupid, but but um, that's what you see how futile it is, and, and that's it, 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 it really I don't even know how to describe it. it it's a cold shower, really. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, and I agree with you, you know, and I'm, I'm a big fan of, again, I'm, I love the Marine Corps. I love what the Marine Corps did. I love our military. And I think you, and that's, that's, that's the thing. You talk to a lot of the vets, the people that have been there that are doing the things. I mean, they do it because of the guy next to them, because there always is that level of humanity, like I said, and, and some people do believe. And I think that's, that's one thing that all of us on the outside need to understand that, that what all of our vets, put up with and go through and sacrifice. I mean, it's it's not well known. You know, it's easy to, to look at the 30-second the clip on the news in the evening or or look at the newsreel or whatever, you know, and, and it's just glossed over. And the real humanity, and that's what I appreciate you writing stories like this. And, I mean, there's, there's so many stories out there, and there doesn't seem enough people trying to capture those stories because when you when you look at the stories like The Higher Call, and there's, there's, some, plen- there's some great books out there and some a lot of effort has happened over the last 10 years. You know, even if you're looking, kind of starting with the Saving Private Ryan kind of, well, I would even say kind of Platoon kind of started it all. But Platoon might be a little, there seems to be a little bit of political slant to that. But Platoon kind of mm-hmm. started that kind of honest assessment of what, um, in my opinion, kind of the motto of what going through. And you look at that and then kind of Saving Private Ryan was the other big push. And then you got the Band of Brothers and you got the Pacific and but there's some great stories out there, and the more that people understand them and look at the humanity, you do realize how futile it is. And I agree with you. I mean, you need—I'm a big fan of strength. You know, I think that you got to have a strong military, a strong presence, and with that, a code of leadership, a code of ethics, a code of of honor. That really, the United States is 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 really the last bastion that really pushes that type of leadership forward. Mm-hmm. From a leader, I, I agree with you. Um, any lessons of leadership? And if you just look from a leadership side, for me, the one that big stands out in your book, The Higher Call, it really is a story about moral courage, about just doing what's right despite what the rules, the regulations, the higher power, the authority with the gun to your head is going to do. 
and and that's what's lacking in so much of civil society. It doesn't have to be the extremes of combat. I mean, just the little things that you you come across in everyday life. Having the moral courage to do what's right, regardless of the rule regulation of laws, I think is something that is that that we're lacking as a society. What do you think about that? I, I think that's a, a, a fine point, and and um, I often worry how many people today would do what Franz Stiegler did, because today our world is so self-absorbed. It's all about my advancement, my career. Uh, Franz Stiegler was was one shot away from destroying that bomber and earning the Knight's Cross. Now, the Knight's Cross was Germany's highest award. You've seen it in all the movies. It's a black cross they wore around their neck. And, and if you wore that cross, it was so ostentatious that if you went on leave somewhere, if you went to Berlin, the girls would just be all over you. You were a hero, and uh, you would get uh, fan mail, and your local newspaper would write it up, and your parents would be proud. You are, you've got the Medal of Honor, basically, in Germany. And the Knights Cross went all the way back to the Teutonic Knights who fought uh, right. in Crusades. So it was an ancient, ancient sort of um, honor. Now, um, Franz Stiegler threw that away. He was one victory away from earning the Knights Cross, and that day he threw it away. And soon after that, they changed the rules for getting the Knights Cross because it was a number of victories you had to attain. So here he threw away his career, essentially. Uh, because, you know, he said, my career doesn't matter. My soul matters first. My honor matters first. My career second. And and uh, and then he also risked, of course, his life. Uh, how many of us would make those decisions even on a small level? You know, we're all worried about our advancement in the world. We're all worried about what other people think of us. Um, and, and I think this lesson that Franz gives us, you know, if Franz Stiegler can risk a, a Gestapo firing squad to try to, save the lives of his enemies because he knows God is watching him, even if, if no other man is watching him. Uh, what a lesson that says to us. Can we do little things to be better people? Absolutely. Um, and and, and I, I like to think that one of the reasons the higher call has been such a success is, um, I thought about it, it's like a boxing match. Um, you know, I'm not really into boxing or that MMA stuff. I think, it's, I think it, it regresses our society, really. Uh, we're going back to the gladiator days. But um, when you see two people beat the heck out of each other for 15 or 20 minutes, the best part to me of a boxing match is when the referee raises their gloves in the end, raises the winner, and then they usually hug each other. Yeah. And they, they usually are half stumbling and, and one guy's knocked out. But in the end, when they actually are done fighting, and they become friends, that to me is the best moment. Now, some people may like it when they're punching each other in the face and trying to bite each other's ears off, but um, to me, I think the reason people like a higher call so much is that it's that moment where they raise the gloves in the air, and and, and, and in essence, the, the war is over and the friendship can begin. And when Franz and Charlie reunited in 1990, how that happened was a miracle. Yeah. It, it was, you know, the, the fact that Franz would survive the war when only... 2,000 out of 40,000 German fighter pilots survived. The fact that Charlie would survive the war when, when he enlisted, the, the survival rate was about 35% in 1942 uh, as a bomber pilot or bomber crewman. The fact that both men would be alive uh, 40-some years later to reunite in 1990. The fact that Charlie was able to find Franz and how he did it, I won't spoil it for the, yeah, the reader I mean, or the listener. Absolutely amazing. And, you, know, when you, and you, you link all that together... You just it, it makes you stop and wonder, like, wow, there's got to be, 
either some divine intervention or something, as your book says, a higher call. I mean, they're, they're, what is the purpose behind this? Because you're absolutely right. And, and even, you know, about the middle of the book is when we talked about when Franz made that decision to, to spare the B-17 bomber. The fact that they made it back, that Charlie Brown made it back, the fact that Franz lived out the rest of the world. I mean, there's so many things happened that almost cost him his life after that. And again, we won't spoil it, but it, it is. It's just amazing. And that's just mm-hmm. one story out of so many. And, and again, it probably is probably one of the, the most miraculous encounters throughout the war. And, and um, I don't know. It's a great piece of work, Adam. I really appreciate you taking the time and the effort to, to write it because um, it's, it's a great piece of work. Well, thank you, Richard. And unlike I, I, you, I, I believe there has got to be a divine, uh, divine message here. The fact that France was shot down at least two to three times. I can't remember what it, what it was. Two to three times after his encounter with yeah. Charlie. Um, he, the fact that he survived the war, it's, it's, uh, you know, when you read about flying with the Ger- German jets, because of course he, he yeah. joined a jet squadron at the yes. end, yeah. and he was fighting up to the last day, uh, just to try to keep one more, uh, bomber from dropping on Germany. That was his, that was his mission, at least. Um, of course, our guys are trying to end that war as quickly as possible, so you've got that dichotomy there. Uh, but, um, at the end of the day, what is the point of this story? I, I like to think it's that ripple effect you talked about. I like to think that this story came together for some divine reason to change our world somehow, some way, someday. And uh, maybe it'll become a movie. Maybe it'll touch more people that way. Um, maybe someday World War II buffs will realize that the best kind of stories are not the ones where you annihilate the enemy. The best kind of stories uh, are the ones where 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 the, the trumpets... Uh, fall silent and the guns fall silent and people go back to the lives they all wanted to live and and so maybe when this war book uh convinces people that war is pretty worthless then it will have uh made some little mark on humanity and and that 10 minutes in 1943 will have come full circle well said you've got a new book coming out as we wrap up here you got one about the, the marines which i'm looking forward to coming out in april is that right what's the name of it that's correct it's called a uh, it's called voices of the pacific and um, it's uh, an oral history of um, 15 Marine veterans from Guadalcanal all the way to Okinawa. And it's, it's an interesting take on, on war stories. I said to the men, all right, you're all 89 years old, you're 90, you're 92. Tell us the stories you always held back your whole lives, from your families, from your friends. This is the last chance <clears throat> to tell the stories you never told. Have it out. Do this for the sake of history. And what resulted were just some of the most incredible war stories ever put in one book. And, um, and it'll change your, your, your image of these old World War II heroes uh, immeasurably. It's, it's a good follow-up to A Higher Call. I think A Higher Call will be, uh, it may be the golden egg that uh, I'm never able to do better than. Uh, I don't want to sell the next book short, but I'm, I'm pretty proud of this first one. Well, you should be my friend. I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours, and, and I'm looking forward to the, the next book coming out. And... Um where can they find you on the web? Uh, it's uh, Richard. It's on uh, Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble. Um, it's also at your local bookstore. Generally, I think they say it's at some Costco, some Sam's Club. Uh, a higher calls in a lot of places. Again, uh, New York Times bestseller for about eight weeks, and um, it's just uh, it, I never expected it. it's my first book. But you know, it's not me. I, I wrote it. I wrote the story. Fonz and Charlie lived it. I mean, all I had to do was not screw this story up. Yeah. So it's good to see it worked. <laughs> Great. 
Well, Adam, thanks for coming on the show. I'll have you back again when we get your new book out. But uh, again, I'm a, I'm a lifelong fan. I appreciate the, what you're doing, and uh, and thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for letting me uh, share the story with your listeners. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, Richard, thank you. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.